everybody and welcome to another edition of the WFI Tactics Podcast. It's been a while, but we're back for the new season. I'm delighted to say Stevie's back. Stevie Grieve, how are you? It's been a fucking age since I have spoken to you. How, how, I know you. I know you're poorly at the minute, how, but other than that, how's things? Aye, it's, it's fine. We've kind of got to, um, the end of the development season in Canada and like the OPDL season's kind of, it's like halfway through it. So my under-16 girls won the OPDL Cup a few weeks ago. So it's kind of been like, it's been very like hectic because we've got, um, we're missing a few staff, but Aye, it's good. We're making a lot of progress, so it's just kind of um, starting the preparations for half of the programme for next season, and then we'll start the next batch of preparations like October, November, so it's, there's like a week where it's kind of not busy, which is kind of this week, but there's never really any respite, which is nice. No, well, I, I, know, I know that feeling, there's no respite. <laughs> no no <laughs> I, respite in this either. I, I, living on a beach, there's no respite. That no, sounds terrible. Living on a beach with your Dropbox full of podcasts, you can't beat it. You just, you can't, what a way to go. But listen, we, we, we sort of came back, we don't know what we're going to talk about. So thankfully people have asked us questions. So I think that's maybe, maybe a good point to start at. And I'm sure we'll go off on tangents as we normally do, and God knows where we'll end up. So... We'll start out, anyway, Grant Gendo had sent a question in about a fellow Scot, Stevie in the form of Oliver Burke, who looks like he's leaving uh, RB Leipzig this morning. The reason that was given uh, for, for, for his failure or, or his surplus to requirements there is that his tactical understanding uh, hadn't developed as they'd hoped at Leipzig. Grant started asking, what do you take this to mean and how much might tactical understanding vary from player to player? So I, I read a thing on Twitter this morning that I think Stefan Bjornkowski had said that he's like a rook in a team full of bishops, which what I take from that is that Leipzig are a team of players who cross into different zones, change positions, understand the movement of space as well as the movement of teammates and opponents and, and how that works with the ball, which becomes quite complex. And I think when, when we look at what Oliver Burke is, he's a powerful, direct athlete who, if you ask him to run in a straight line behind somebody into space, he's frightening. And that's what his strength is. His strength isn't um, taking up new positions or wandering in between the lines or occupying multiple defenders. is. What I would say is a very simple, very basic style of play, but very effective. And I think there are there are certain players who, like Gareth Bale, when you ask him to play very vertically, almost like you could say in the Oliver Burke style, he's phenomenal at it. If you ask him to drop in and play between the lines and stuff like that, he can do it, but it's not really his game. And I think Leipzig, where they, they kind of play like a 4-2-2-2, the wide midfielders come inside a little bit and they make runs behind the strikers and the strikers drop in or drift wide and there's a lot of movement and fluidity in it. I think with the complexity of the amount of players interchanging positions and positions that they take up and fill in and anticipate the movement of space, it maybe doesn't suit him as much to play like that. I think if he was played as kind of like a, a classic winger or a, a wide forward who runs beyond, then that might suit him more. Last season, the coach had said that his hard drive is empty in terms of tactical discipline, which maybe not his fault because he's a product of how he's been coached when he was younger. And I think, like I've said before, I think pressing is something that coaches do, but not everybody understands that they ask to press and they want to press. But there's there's multiple different ways to press and multiple different ways to press different shapes, systems, different patterns, different ways of, of dealing with marking space. 
controlling space, marking opponents, tracking runners and things like that. So I don't think it's a, it's a big slight on Oliver Burke to say that his tactical understanding hasn't developed as much as what they'd hoped. Possibly their, their coaching could have been better um, for him as a, an individual, but sometimes it just doesn't work out for a player based on the style of play and, and other things that go on. I think he was a good player at 19 years of age. He's shown that he's got a good player when he has played for Leipzig, but I think it takes a mature player to decide, I'm going to leave to go and get minutes. I had a, an interesting chat this week with Nikos Overheel, who mentioned Jack Harper, who's only played like 29 minutes of first-team football, and he's now 22. So there's a lot of like young young players out there at big clubs or have made big moves who have never made the breakthrough. And I think probably for Oliver Burke, it was more just a case of it's, it's not working for him at Leipzig. Find a club where you're going to be a main player, and I think West Brom might be that club for him. Whether it's the right club and the right move, I don't know, but it's, I think it's more important that he gets minutes. You know, I was much maligned at the time whenever he, whenever he went to Leipzig. I was thinking it was John Hartson who came out and, and sort of attacked him. And you know, it looks like West Brom could be his destination here, <laughs> Stevie, which was where uh, <laughs> is where Hartson suggested he go in the first place. You know, at the time, it, it seemed like a very backward thinking sort of thing, but it's actually come to fruition. What, what's your What's your thoughts on? Do you think that Hartson's vindicated in any way by any of that? No, no. I think like a, a broken clock is right twice. So John Hartson can be right by mentioning. I think it was Burnley, Sunderland, and West Brom were the three clubs he mentioned going to. Right, but if you look at two of those clubs, Burnley don't really attack. Sunderland are a shambles, and West Brom last year were. I could say lucky because they're not a team who actually develop many wingers or forwards or attacking midfielders. Like they've got so such a strong defensive base that Matt Phillips became a good player because he's got a level of individuality and you can create things in his own, can score some goals. Salomon Rondon does a good job as stretching the play as, as a target man. Whether he's still going to be there by the end of the transfer window, or if he's even still there now, I don't know because I haven't checked West Brom. It's not a, not a team which completely interests me because I find them boring to watch. So maybe Oliver Burke's going there thinking it's a club that are interested in him. Does he suit the profile of being a, a guy that sits a, a low to medium block and plays in the counter attack, and as opposed to playing in the opposition's half? I think maybe that suits him more. And, it's one of those things where John Hartson said, oh, maybe you should have gone somewhere like West Brom and now people will say, oh, John Hartson is right. But let's be honest here, like, stopped clocks are right twice a day. So John Hartson said something a year ago and it just being coincidental that he's gone to that club is, is different. If he'd gone to Newcastle, would it, would it make it right? If, it, if he'd gone to Sunderland or wherever, would well, it make it right? at Newcastle, you would feel Benitez would give him maybe. You know, the, the West Brom style, I, I don't think, from, from what type of player that Burke is, you you wonder at his his purposes being served well there. You know, a Newcastle I could see as being a positive for him. I'm not so sure to West Brom. I think like even if you take somebody like Adam Everton, right? They're gonna try and play with the ball, they're gonna try and put his play in possession. If you'd gone to South like Southampton, again a club known for developing players, giving people opportunities and, and playing a, a style which is like what I would consider developmental. So if you take youth football and professional football, teams that develop players that sell them on are teams that try and play in possession try and play progressively try and play in all four phases of the game you've got a team like West Brom who are generally going to sit in a low block and counter attack they're not going to play organised possession very often if they do it's to try and lead to a set piece 
Um, they don't really play in, in defensive transition, therefore they don't really counter press. They just kind of they go from sitting in a low block, counter attack, get back in shape. So I think playing in two of the four moments of the game, or, or the six moments of the game, if you consider the multi transitions, another aspect of the game. I don't think that's the most developmental style. So there are other clubs where Oliver Burke could have gone to, which would probably suit him a little bit more, but also develop him a little bit more. But I think Tony Pulis is, is obviously a well-respected manager. He's, he's always been successful. The style of play isn't always the most attractive, we could say, but it's effective. And I think they're not going to be in danger of getting relegated. They can push for to get into Europe. I think that that would be good. But I think it's one of those places where it's like a safe move for who needs to no, I'm sure, like myself, you, you wish him well there, Stevie. Well, another well, another question, and maybe, well, maybe a little bit more in-depth on this one, that uh, comes from Adam Brandon, and he, he's asking if you feel that defensive coaching isn't a strong suit of, of current German head coaches. And I think, you know, I know he's an Norwich supporter, and I know they have a, a new German coach there, which he's not sort of over-enamoured with, and, and certainly I don't think he was enamoured with the defending on show in the, uh, the Liverpool-Hoffenheim tie. You know, Stevie... We, we, I think we've talked about this before. I think there's there's a there's a great gap in in defensive players these days. Um, you know, there's not the great defenders of the past, and surely that comes into it somewhere as well. But from the coaching aspect of it, are, are players not being coached the same, or is is maybe maybe something in the German game? I know that they they love their attacking football and so on. Is is there is there aspects to this that are missing? So I think it would be wrong to just suggest that German coaches struggle defensively. Because um, that would be like saying that Scottish coaches struggle to get their teams to score goals, which you you could look at numbers and go, oh well, you can you can bring some sort of analysis and justification to that comment. But I, I would disagree with it on the basis that German coaches like to try and retain compactness in possession, which allows them to counter press. When they go into an organised block, generally they'll try and play in a mid-block. I know these are all complete generalisations and I've not actually watched Norwich, so I can't give you anything specific about them. But if they play in a medium block and they set a high press and they try and close you down, defending close to your own goal like Tony Pulis or defending in the opposition half are completely different. Now, if we take one of the things I used to hate about watching punditry and also when I was a pundit was people saying, oh, like Jerome Boateng or Barcelona or Kike or Bayern Munich, oh, they're bad defensively. It's completely different defending 40 metres from your own goal, 1v1 or 2v2, or defending counter-attacks with a huge amount of space behind the high press than it is defending deep. And I think if we were to say that German coaches like to press, um, they like to counter-press, that leaves you a little bit exposed for when the press is broken and then it leaves a lot of space. Now, if you don't have um, individual players who are capable of dealing with that, then that obviously gives you problems. If we were to say, for example, Johnny Evans, because he's been linked with Man City, good football, good 1v1 defender, good in the box, a solid all-round defender. Would he improve Liverpool defending on the halfway line if they go to counter-press? I probably would. Would he improve them defending in the box? Aye, he probably would. But is he completely suited to playing in a halfway line? No, not really. Is Jerome Boateng or Gerard Piquet completely suited to sitting in the box and heading balls away for 90 minutes? No, of course not. So different defenders with different profiles and actually defending individually or by the unit or by the collective are completely different. And I think defending while you're trying to press high and play in possession is, is going to leave you vulnerable. Like, all of my teams have the same vulnerabilities, which 
I understand and I accept because of the way that I like to coach. I like to have the ball. I'm a little bit more direct through the lines on the floor. I play more through combinations and try and I try and cut through the lines as, as often as quickly as possible to try and get more goal scoring chances or try to play when the team are unbalanced. But what that leaves you with is if the ball is lost in a, a weak position, one or two really quick early passes exposes the back line and makes you run back to your own goals. This isn't good. So from that point of view, you could probably criticise me and say my teams are bad defensively. But I know that that's not the case. The case is how you play and where the weaknesses are and the things that you kind of accept or or don't accept. Like if I accept that my team's not going to score many chances but be strong defensively, then I might choose to play, play deeper, play more direct, play less control, try and move the team up the field faster. But with less players, I might only attack with three or four. Whereas if I try to attack with six or seven players, it's going to leave me more vulnerable in transition moments or when the ball gets moved up the field or if players are tired late on and recovering and not able to get back in position. So I think from from the question, do German coaches struggle um, with defending? I would I would say that's a gross generalisation and no. Um, but I think that the reasons for that are the ones that try to employ a high press after playing in position and try to employ a counter-press after losing the ball, um, you're, there are going to be vulnerabilities of which you as a coach will accept. As well, Stevie, is, is there a case to be made that, you know, maybe these players, these um, defenders, especially defensive players, what's, the expectations on them have changed so much with the, with the modernisation of the last sort of maybe the last decade. And, and we think of their roles very, very differently today than we would have maybe 10, 20 years ago. You know, it was defending only. I think modern coaches are wanting to get a little bit more out of them as a player. W- would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, if you've got two centre-backs who are of the same profile, and they're both big, horrible defenders that like just shelling the ball out the box and clearing it and heading it, and they enjoy the physical contact, but they're they're not so comfortable on the ball, then you're asking your midfielders and fullbacks to do other stuff to overcompensate for that. But at the same time, if we now ask a centre-back to be really, really good on the ball, not all centre-backs who are really, really good on the ball are great defenders. So you lose a little bit of that because you can't ask a midfielder to go and get in the box and head and kick everything clear because they're generally 12 to 15 metres further forward and and can't always do that for them. So it's kind of like a trade-off. Unless you're going to get the, the absolute perfect defender who can do everything in the box, who's incredible on the ball, can defend counter-attacks by running behind and covering or going to press it and intercept things. I don't think that as a player who is capable or should even have that expectation of them. I I think if we look at the game 15, 20 years ago, I think it's it's easy for us to say that there were more good defenders back then because maybe we, we think more about how good they were as opposed to the actual reality because we see more of players now. But by the same token, I mean... Again, if we take my, my teams as an example this year, my under-16s, I put, I put a girl who generally you could say is probably more suited to playing full-back um, and at centre-back because the, the two girls who are playing centre-back were both uncomfortable in possession. One of them become very comfortable in possession and, and was fine in it. The other one was getting better up until a point. But the team function was better in possession and how we could control the game with Tessa playing at centre-back as opposed to, to full-back, whereas there would be some games where we play against a big physical striker or against a lot of long balls, where the other two centre-backs who were less comfortable in possession were more dominant physically. That that was the game which would be more suited for them. So we try to find solutions for could one of the central midfielders drop in and take the ball off the centre-back. So 
it's not as it's not as easy a solution as people would think to just say, right, well, you're you're bad defensively, put in a big hammer thrower of a centre back in there to deal with him. Because then you if you want to play in possession phases, then you need somebody who's good in the ball or you need different compensation mechanisms from from fullbacks or central midfielders or wingers to go and find possession from from the back or play more direct, regain it from the second ball, then start your attack higher up the field. So I think defenders are they've got so much of an expectation now to be a midfielder that sometimes the the necessity of being a defender is lost. Whereas if you just get a defender, people will criticise them because they're no great in the ball. And I think if we look at something like Gerard Piquet or John Stones, in some games you just want a big horrible defender who will just clear it and, and be safe rather than be guys that are progressive and take risks. Right, and then if we take a step back further, Stevie, you know, we start looking at, you know, certain, certainly the Guardiola's of this world. Now, you know, the goalkeeper's even becoming a ball player. And, you know, the, the, you know this is this is causing problems. And, and certainly I see it at Liverpool because I think Klopp expects Simon Mingley, God help him, uh, to, to have distribution and be, to be able to do this. And he just doesn't. But is, again, is this unrealistic expectations? Then you know, on defenders, their their roles have changed. The goalkeeper's role has changed. With those changing roles, is that what is causing the, this sort of train of thought or this belief that the art of defending is dead? I don't know if if the art of defending is dead, but what I would say is there's possibly more of an expectation that you're very comfortable in possession and you don't just needlessly give it away, so that you have to defend. Um, and the more and more young coaches that are involved in youth development are going to produce more and more players who become really comfortable at the top level in possession. They maybe lack a little bit physically, uh, or maybe they lack a little bit in terms of actually being amazing positionally as a defender. Like for me, somebody who would be, I think, is, is, is the best defender in the world is either Sergio Ramos or Leonardo Bonucci. Both are great in possession. Both are leaders. Both are positionally excellent. Sergio Ramos has occasionally got a little bit of a, a temperament, which is fine. You have to have that in, in the top. Leonardo Bonucci is a little bit more calm, but he's probably got a head in rage, you could say, because you don't get to the level you're at without a little bit of an anger to be able to, to fire yourself up and your teammates. So... If you take Sergio Ramos and Leonardo Bonucci as being two stereotypical guys who are able to defend but can do all the football-wise stuff, then that's kind of the template that youth development coaches are going to be looking for. And I think now, if you look at goalkeepers, a lot of goalkeepers are good on the ball now. If you take 20 years ago, goalkeepers were guys who basically stood in the goal and kicked it as far away as they could. I remember reading something recently about the back pass rule, and after week one or week two of the Premier League season, they were saying this is the worst rule ever. But you can see gradually the improvement of how many football and goalkeepers there are. I think futsal probably actually helps with that because goalkeepers are not only to deal with passbacks, or if they do, they've got to use their feet and they've got to be quick and under pressure in tight spaces and be really accurate, which means their body shape, their position and their vision, their, their pass selection all have to be really good and then they have to be able to execute it. So I think in the future, because of the nature of how younger coaches are thinking and perceiving the game will, will determine in 10 years the types of players we produce. And I think, I think it was at Feyenoord I was at, and I did, I did a few weeks there, and I think it was Melvin Bowl, who's now the under-17s coach, had said to me that it might get to the stage where kids who are, they fit the physical profile for a goalkeeper at 15-16, but they're not quite good enough to be top-level Eredivisie players or Feyenoord first-team players. 
might be looked at for future goalkeeping roles. So if you have the goalkeeping profile, tall, athletic, physical, decent reflexes, can you come and claim a cross? Or since you have shown a wee bit of potential by messing about at training and goal, might be identified for future goalkeeping training so that if they're released, then there's maybe a new pathway for them because they read the game better, their kicking is better, um, they understand a little bit more about what's going to happen in a game rather than somebody who's just played only in goal since eight years old. So it was interesting that Melvin felt that in the future you might have more failed outfield players who become goalkeepers because if 70% of the goalkeeper's game now is with their feet, then you need people who are more confident at reading the game, more confident with the ball at their feet, and then can do the goalkeeper stuff to a reasonably good level. I think the issue with that becomes that maybe you have more goals conceded because they, they're bad shot stoppers or whatever. But it was interesting speaking to Melvin, who who that was one of his thoughts for maybe the future. And thinking about it now, you have a lot of a lot of goalkeepers, even in Burlington that we have, we've got, and we're under 13s, we've got three goalkeepers. One's pretty good with the ball at her feet, one's a little bit shaky, and the other one is okay with it, but under pressure she'll panic a little bit. And I think I was asked a question by one of the parents why one of them was moved up to under 14s, because... I felt that the goalkeeper we were using, they're of roughly the same level technically as goalkeepers, but one of them is much better with our distribution, which when teams press higher and quicker, you need to be able to get out of them for the way I want to play. That's that's a mandate of the goalkeeper that they don't lose the ball in the first or the second pass. So I think we will see again in, in 10 years, you've got 10-year-old goalkeepers who will be 20 in 10 years who will be in the first team who are like midfielders with the ball. I think it's just the natural evolution of the game. No, and, and well, I suppose it's, it, for me, you know, it, it's, from what I grew up watching, today's defending stroke goalkeeping is just, it, it's all, it's off the chart batshit crazy compared to compared to what what I used to watch. And, you know, I, I see at times goalkeepers maybe uncomfortable in that role. And sometimes I just wonder whether it's, it's the best way forward, but it's the modern game. Listen, we had another question from a guy called Maguire, somebody called Sam Maguire. Don't know if you know him or not. Uh, uh, vaguely. Yeah, vaguely. yeah, he's one of them blue tech people, you know, that don't really bother a lot. <laughs> <laughs> a bit like yourself. Uh, and, and Sam's asking, do you feel that uh, Roberto Firmino is now the most complete player in the world? Um, no, Sam. Yeah, surprising on that one. No, no, and I'll I'll tell you why he's asked the question. He's top of the fantasy Premier League, and Firmino's got quite a lot of points, and I think that that's clouded his judgment. So, no, Sam, no, because he's not Lionel Messi. Stephen McDougall will tell you Cristiano Ronaldo is the best player in the world. I'm not having it. If Sam McGuire's telling me Roberto Firmino's the best player in the world, I'm not having it. No, I think it was the most most better than Messi. Most complete. I don't think he was. uh, I I think I get where he's coming from. The all-round game that, that Firmino brings, you know. That, that pressing he never he never stops the engine on the guy you know he he there's ne- there's never such a thing as, as giving in for Firmino I think it's it's one of the one of the traits that I really admire in the guy I, I think maybe he's sort of up from that angle I I, th- I think I know what you mean his pressing's good his defensive work rate is is very good his position is good he's a link player um, as opposed to an out and out goal scorer which I think helps well, with he's not a striker and never will be Stevie and I think that's that's the bit that, that, that he's going to struggle with in his role at that, in that he's not a Luis Suarez and I don't even think in terms of goal scoring he's a Daniel Sturridge but what he does do is he does all the things that Jurgen Klopp needs from his centre forward and he's found 
Um, you could say two wingers in, in Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah who can do a lot of the goal scoring work and the running behind work that he really, really wants. So is he a complete player? I think other than other than goal scoring, which is pretty important for a centre forward, I think he's a very com- a very complete player. I would like him to see him get to 18 goals in the Premier League for Liverpool to try and put him up. possible, Stevie, because, you know, that, that is the one area that I, I would say that, that, you know, is his development at the minute. He he misses a lot of chances. He He's quite wasteful. And I put that down. I remember when we signed him, people said, that, you know, he can play a false nine, but he's not he's not the complete finisher. He's nowhere near, anywhere near the complete finisher. I think it's something where if you've got good staff on the, on the training ground, I think that Pep and Landers at Liverpool is the development coach, so... Maybe it's something they've identified over the summer. I saw him taking a penalty last week, which I don't know if James Milner was on the field or not, but I think that the more often he puts the ball in the net, and even if it is a, a penalty, which is roughly what, 78% conversion rate, if he's putting penalties in the box, maybe he feels like, oh, I've got my name in the score sheet, my name's in the board, I've scored some goals, even though you could argue a penalty is a cheap goal, it's still a goal. Maybe that might be the little bit of a boost that he needs because he'll score more often if it comes from a penalty or a loose ball or whatever. Striker like strikers go and run. If strikers like Olivier Giroud might get nine goals in nine games and then they'll be seen for three months. Whereas Firmino, if he's getting a goal every couple of games and it just starts to tick over, then maybe he feels like he should take more shots. And if if guys like Pepin Linders are working with him on the training ground. And working on the, the little flaws that he'll have in his game for maybe the technique of his finishing or the timing of his runs or his body shape when he arrives in the box or how he loses a defender or sometimes it's just a mentality thing. Like if you if you take me as an example, I'm five foot four, five foot five. There's no point in me just running in the box to the front post because I'm not going to win it. So it becomes a mentality issue. I'm going to be the guy that just hangs around the edge of the box, looks for cutbacks, and maybe for. Mino's one of those guys because is he great in there? He's okay. Is he a great finisher? He's okay. So does he try and let other people get in the box before him and he looks for, for different types of finishes from different types of areas? So maybe it's more of a mentality issue. Like, does he get across the front the, the front post defender or does he get himself in, the, in between the, the front post and the middle of the goal to finish rather than six yards outside the front post, which is obviously um, a difficult finish to make. So... There'll be little things which I'm sure the Liverpool staff will have identified with him and, and be working with him to become a better finisher because I don't buy into this thing that it's hard, it's really difficult to improve professional players because I think as much as it's difficult to improve them, they already have the base technical level and know how to do it. It's just sometimes it's about finding one little thing which is going to make a big, big difference and that can be the thing that changes it for them. No, indeed. And I've won here myself, Stevie, and I'm really curious to hear your opinion on it. You know, PSG have thrown a lot of money about, and it's rumoured they're going to throw an awful lot more money about. And I'm just curious as to, you know, it's almost they're becoming, you know, the new new Real Madrid of Galacticos um, with with all this spending. We don't know how it's going to work out with FFP. That's, that, that's a question for tomorrow. But, you know, what have you made of these acquisitions and... and how, how, what do you see the barriers of them all fitting in and making them a cohesive unit? Um, I absolutely hate it. I, I don't like this spending of huge amounts of money on the sly as well. Like it's not even it's not even transparent. You know, it's well, it's transparent, but it's it, it, that makes it a little more no- nauseous, nearly. Yeah, I don't like it because there are players in Paris Saint Germain's youth academy who are good enough to play in their first team, and within two or three years. 
maybe become as good as Kylian Mbappe. Maybe be better. Like Kylian Mbappe is obviously a phenomenal talent, and I know they've just spent two hundred million on Neymar. But if they were to go and buy Mbappe and pay him fifteen million a year, the guy's eighteen. Like for me, it's just it's just incredible. Stevie really couldn't. Like we've seen it before. These 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 kids burst onto the scene, and and you know they they have this burst, and then they hit their twenties, and and they're never the player you expect. How much of a risk is for a Paris Saint Germain? Who look, they're a top club in France, but if you take it in the in the big European stage, they're not heavyweights. And I don't mean any disrespect to them in that respect. You'll know you'll know what I mean by that. And they're trying to buy their way to being a heavyweight, but that. It just the, 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 they they play in a weak league. They you know it, it just doesn't make sense. One interesting thing I would take from it is if Paris Saint Germain chucking all this money in, does somebody from I don't know maybe a Chinese investor or another Middle Eastern investor go in and go right okay we're going to buy another big historic club so we'll go and buy Saint Etienne because I think Marseille were just bought over by some maybe some French investors or from some American investors I don't know so they've started investing money, but they're never going to invest the same amount of money that Paris Saint-Germain are. Paris Saint-Germain have got the potential to be a super club because they are the only big club in Paris and it's probably the only capital city in Europe where there is almost no competition. So they're going to be able to generate a massive fan base just in the city, which is obviously one of the biggest in Europe. So if the interesting thing for me would be if Paris Saint-Germain are going a bit nuts and running riot with the league, Monaco are not going to invest more money because they already tried that and then they went down the youth development route. So do people start buying clubs like Rennes or Lille or Saint-Étienne or someone like that and then just use it as a farm team to try and make money from Paris by developing two or three really good players and having Paris spend stupid amounts of money on them because they feel like they're going to be the next Galactico? Like, uh, I don't like it just from a purely moral standpoint. I don't like how Football is going in the sense that a player can now just go, well, give me 200 grand a week because that's like the going rate. It's incredible. It's just it. The money has to filter down and I don't think it ever will because the people who are producing these players are the ones who are the lowest paid, often unpaid, often paid almost nothing, almost taken advantage of at youth level. I mean, the amount of jobs that I've seen going in Britain like um, a lead youth development phase coach, 18 grand a year. I was approached by a club asking me if I would like to coach their under-18s for, I think it was £22,500 a year. And I just laughed at like, I literally just laughed, like, are you serious? Aye, and in but reality, the, Stevie, how many hours a week is that? You know, it's not, that's not a 40-hour week for you, that's a whole aye, lot more but, than that. Well, let's, let's say at the end of it, you produce or you help produce a player who's sold for £9 million. Where does that money go? It just goes straight into the club. It doesn't go into the, the people who help generate that income because it's, it's no viewed as important. So from a purely moral standpoint, I hate it. I hate how it doesn't filter its way down to the people who are doing the actual work. Like the first team manager might say, oh, give me 5% of, of the transfer fee. Great. 5% of a, a guy sold for $5 million. That's quite a substantial amount of money. But because he put them in the first team and gave them a chance and things like that and sold them on. The guys actually in the eight years previously are maybe the ones that formed that player and they're seeing nothing of it. So from a moral standpoint, I hate it. From a rewarding of the people who are actually busting their ass and putting the effort in, it's no acceptable. And I think when you look at the amount of money which is involved in the top level of football and the amount of money which is done in the area of football which produces 
the people who are going to go onto that level, which are sold for incredible sums of money, there's such a disparity between the work that goes into it and the end product. Which one generates the most amount of money and which one generates the amount of volume that you need to be able to produce the amount of money? And I think I, I, I dislike it for a number of reasons. Like I, I, my wife hates football and I say to Sarah, like, Neymar's going to get sold for 200 million. That's like, and she's just looking at me like, how many kids in Africa could you save for that amount of money? And the money's just been taken out of the game. The fans put the money in, the subscribers go to the TV station and say to Sky, here's, here's six, seven hundred pounds a year for me to watch a lot of, a lot of matches, but some are terrible because everybody's just fighting for survival to not lose money. Then, then somebody like Alexis Sanchez says, well, I want 350 grand a week. Like, come on. The world's the world's gone mental. The football world's gone mental. Eventually, it's going to collapse, and the people asked to to rebuild it will be the people who have been working for almost nothing for all these years. They'll be the ones that are asked to to try and put some sense of perspective into it. And I think if we go back to what I think the original question was, if Paris Saint-Germain build a team of Galacticos, are they going to be able to win the Champions League? I probably. Does it benefit French football by them winning the Champions League with a bunch of Brazilians, Italians, Spaniards, Germans, whatever. No, no, it doesn't. It benefits French football by them using French players. Obviously, you're going to have a, a sense of internationalism in every club. That's that's the, the global society we live in. That's the modern world. Um, is it good for French football that maybe San Etienne can sell a team, a, a player to Paris for 15 million, and San Etienne then reinvents that in, in youth players and youth staff and everything else to try and develop more players to do that and to, to bring themselves up the league through a system kind of like what Monaco have done with a lot of young players but also at the, at the time of getting guys like Fabinho from I think from Real Madrid for quite cheap so if the money filters its way down properly and, and the coaching staff and stuff are paid adequately then fine but it's not it probably won't ever be and there will be a point in the next I'm going to say next 10 years where the money completely collapses because of something which happens geopolitically and then all the TV contracts all the players contracts everything just goes boom and that's that. then it just drops like the global financial crisis and I think it worries me the direction it's going in to be honest and also, you know, like they talk about PSG. Some some describe it as, you know, it's basically a toy for oil rich uh, people and so on. If they're if they suddenly become bored, and you you know, we've seen it like Abramovich at Chelsea as well, who who's who's lasted the course. Fair play to him. You know what I mean? He's actually turned a profit there. But not all owners sort of last that long. The, the difficulties I see for, for Paris Saint-Germain could be, you know, that this Qatari money could dry up someday, and then you're left with all these players on these big wages and. It's unrealistic to keep to keep going to that. Whereas you know you look across the way and Monaco are doing a completely different model. They won the French league last year on that model. Surely, common sense. There needs to be a middle ground here of common sense somewhere, Stevie. I, I would agree with you completely. I think that the middle ground is becoming so ridiculous now that the middle ground's even just it's just stupid. I mean, you've got championship teams paying stupid amounts of money for, for players, but then you go to, let's say, an English championship team who've got loads of money because of the TV deal, then they ask for a player from the Scottish Premier League for £250,000. And the Scottish Premier League team saying, oh, aye, aye, that's fine. Like, for a player who, if he was 
even a lower level England would cost three or four million. I mean, like Rangers sold Barry Mackay for half a million. If he was the same standard of player already playing in English Championship, he'd have been eight, nine, ten million pounds because he's he's a good player. So the even the middle ground at the level below the Premier League levels. I mean, like the French second division. Somebody I read somewhere that West Ham were going to spend eight million on a guy from like Lorient or somebody in the French second division. Kevin right. Stewart from Liverpool was sold for ten million or very close to it, Stevie. Three or four t- first team appearances. The mind, the mind boggles me. But at the same time, right, I'm a big fan of of like stats bomb and stuff like that. I spend a lot of time reading it. I spend a lot of time researching it because I think it enhances the coaching process. But now when I read it, I'm starting to look at player transfers because like my ultimate ambition, I'd like to be a a manager, a head coach. And I think as you're going through certain phases, you want to try and be over-prepared for when the chance comes so that you're, you're comfortable. I'm looking at it going... If you're the chairman and you're going, Kevin Stewart, Liverpool, how many first-team appearances? Ten. All right, eight million. How do you get the chairman to agree to that, firstly? And then secondly, you as a manager, do you go, actually, hold on a second, that's eight million pounds of the fans' money. How am I able to justify spending eight million on a guy with ten first-team appearances who might not actually be any good? And then, even if he is good, What's the resale value? What's our profit margin off of that? Because you can't run a business on the basis of I pay eight million for him, hope he's good, and then sell him for eight million in three years. No, why not just get another guy who costs two million and then turn him into an eight million pound player and then sell him on? Because there's players better than Kevin Stewart playing in Scotland who don't cost eight million. You could get players like Jackson Irving went from Ross County to. To Burton Albion for two hundred and fifty grand. I'm pretty sure he's a better player than Kevin Stewart. So why would you spend eight million pounds on the guy? He's a good player, but is he really that good for eight million? So you're looking at English Championship clubs. How much money are you spending? And then the disparity across even the player, the teams within the same league. And then you go to like I think last year Rotherham were about thirty points behind the relegation safety. And how much money are they able to invest? So it's even at a lower level, like it's just becoming ridiculous. And I don't think that the clubs with with no money or who are getting given a little bit of an offer are able to hold out. I think Liam Boyce went from Ross County to somebody in the English Championship. It might also be Burton Albion for 250 grand. And you're going, right, you could probably have got 2 million for him if, if, if he'd held on a wee bit longer or been able to extend his contract and say, well, we'll give you 20% of anything we sell you for because if we sell you for 2 million, you're going to make more money. So there's like, it's getting a bit, it's getting so mental that the people at the top level need to get in touch with people who are able to provide a non-biased opinion as to what the real value of a player is, what the real transfer fee should be, what the real wages of that player should be, and try and project future growth, like Ted Knutson, who we've had on this, wrote a really interesting article about how do you value Kylian Mbappe? 18 years old, probably 12 to 15 years left at the top level. Could he become Ronaldo, Messi, Thierry and standards? And what would that cost? What would the outlay be? What would be the amortisation? How much would he cost per year to be an employee of your football club? Uh, and what could that potentially bring to you? And I think... I don't think there's enough football clubs going down that route of actually going, right, are we getting value for money anymore? Well, here's the thing. It seems like... Is, you know, 
Is risk even taken into the, the consideration? Because I don't feel that it is in football anymore. You know, obviously, you're talking about Mbappe there, who, as I said, can go one way or the other. He's 18 years old. He can go on to have a magnificent career. He can go off for rails. He's 18 years old, a young lad. We don't know. He's not fully matured yet. That, to me, football clubs do not factor in the risk element. It's just about getting the player and, and to hell be damned with the rest. Yeah, I, w- I would agree to with that to a certain extent I think I think that there are probably still some clubs who do assess where what is the point where you draw the line and you say right based on our turnover and what our profits are and how do we spend this money over a certain amount of time and how much value and time are we going to get like say for example you're going to pay £20 million for a 29 year old striker you might get three years at the top level out of them but you're also paying them £6 million a year so if you're getting a five-year contract, you're paying him 30 million transfer fees, 20 million, 50 million pound layout for a guy who's 29, who may or may not still be good in two years. So is that worth the risk? And some clubs will go, well, if he gets us the Champions League or he helps us get to, into the Champions League, then maybe that is a good good risk or maybe that's the risk worth taking. Whereas I think there are, there are some clubs who are looking at it and going, is it a risk we need to take? So I, I would I would agree to it way to an extent, but I would also say that there are some clubs who are probably going, we, we could have, like, let's say Arsenal, for example, could have bought Alvaro Morata, 60 million or whatever. You could have bought Lukaku at roughly the same price. For me, there is no comparison between Morata and Lukaku. I would have Lukaku every single day of the week. Okay, so now do we look at, right, Lacazette or Morata? I'm not sure between the two of them. Lacazette seems a better goal scorer. Morata seems better at doing other stuff outside the box. What do Arsenal need? What's the risk? So maybe if Arsenal spend 15 million less on Morata and his wages are, are lower because he's come from a lower level club, then what's the risk of Morata of being a flop as opposed to the risk of Lacazette being a flop? And what's the financial implication? So Arsenal maybe looked at that and went, right, well, maybe there's 25, 30 million pound of difference between one being a flop and the other. So, I think there are elements of, of clubs looking at risk, but at the same time, can they afford for it to be a bad investment? Most of them can, because they've got that much money now, whereas at lower levels, and I always kind of allude back to Scottish football, because obviously I'm Scottish, Scottish clubs can't really afford to have that risk. Like, like Celtic spent £4 million for £4.5 million on Oliver and Sham from either from Man City or from Cagliari I'm not really sure if he was on loan or if it was Cagliari but he turns he's, he looks fantastic 4 million 5 million is a big big layout for a Scottish club would somebody like Huddersfield have benefited from signing him probably would 5 million be uh, like a big risk for them now they're in the Premier League no Celtic one of the biggest football clubs in the world and Huddersfield have not been in the Premier League for maybe 40 years or something like that. I'm probably wrong because I've not researched it, but one's a risk for a, a, a relatively small club and one's a huge risk for a massive club. So does Celtic take that deal lightly? No, they don't. If they spend £2.5 million on a striker like Stefan Skepovic, who turns out to be pretty brutal, that's a big waste of money for a Scottish club, whereas for a, even a team in the lower end of the Championship, they can gobble that up and throw it away and it's not a big deal. No, and you know, I, th- I think the, the the risk management is more. You, you know, I was having a conversation recently about Alexis Sanchez, and you know, if he moved from Arsenal, and and why I would have him at my club with open arms because of what he brings and the mentality that you can't buy, and that just that, that engine and that that never say die mentality. And 
you know, people are going, oh, but he's, he's 29, you know, he's nearly 30, blah, blah, blah. But again, if that guy comes to your club, gives you two good years, sets you to the next level, the money that you're, you're gaining at the moment, and I, and I do agree with you, the bubble's coming, but right at this moment in time with the TV deal and everything in, in the UK the way it is and the Sky money and the Champions League money, you can nearly offset that. And I don't see, I, I think Mbappe's much more of a risk um, at, at that inflated price than, than if you paid it for, for Alexis Sanchez. The, the way I would look at that is there's a sporting value and then there's a commercial value. The sporting value being what does he bring on the field, the commercial value being what is he going to bring you off the field in terms of... But, but where is that prioritised, Stevie? That's that's the question in, in today's world. Right, so let's say... Right, so Alex Sanchez, 29, and physically phenomenal shape, doesn't... Obviously, I don't know the guy, but doesn't look like he has any any bad habits off the field like his diet is probably phenomenal probably doesn't he drink probably the sort of guy that goes to a restaurant or, or there's a salad and water with some chicken breast so he probably has the most boring food in the world to keep himself in top level condition maybe slightly similar to Cristiano Ronaldo in that sense that Ronaldo will probably still be an amazing player at 38 so do you look at Alexis Sanchez and go well there's a fair chance that we could probably get five years out of this guy even though he's 29 so so you look at his transfer fee and maybe you go, right, well, his wages from the first bunch of things, but there's no resale value. So is he going to bring you what you want for the outlay at maybe 50 million, 60 million, 100 million, whatever it's going to be? And then you go to him back and you go, right, well, if he's going to cost, say, 150 million, just to chuck out a number, and then you have to pay him 20 million a year for 10 years. So your overall outlay might be 350 million plus the extra bits. Well, what happens if he is isn't that good like how much do you sell them for that you you make an immediate loss on because nobody's going to pay 150 million for a guy who turns out to be a flop after four years so then there's a huge risk in like how much money do you lose on a, a single transfer after paying the guy's wages and everything else so if you're paying him 100 million in wages over five years and you pay 150 million in transfer fee 250 million of a layer for him to play and then you maybe lose 75 million on the transfer fee or you gain 75 million once you sell them. Like it's, that's a huge risk to take for, for an 18 year old. I understand what you're saying because one's proven and one's kind of a, a six month flash in the pan a little bit, but it's shown an amazing level of potential and composure at that age that he's got. So, um, to me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't probably try and sign Mbappe just because he has only been proven for six months, but then at the same time, um, do you buy a player once everybody realises he's amazing, or do you buy a player before? And it depends on what level of club you're at. I think Sevilla, um, when Monkey was there, was one of those clubs who would say, we try to buy a player before the Premier League buys him, because if the Premier League buys him, then he's already there. Whereas we buy him and then sell him on, knowing they're going to make a profit. So they try and get in before everybody else realises that they're a great player. And I think some clubs take the, maybe take the signing policy of, we buy the guy when he's he's already at the stage that we want, or do we leave him to, to sign for somebody else, monitor him, then buy him for even more, knowing that when he does arrive that he's going to be already. So it just, I think there are so many intangibles with the stupid amounts of money that are involved. I mean, my, my personal preference would be try to sign undervalued players, try to sign guys that are, seem like a bit of a bargain and then improve them and develop them with the occasional little bit of expenditure on somebody who you know is going to take you to a level above what you have. And I think I think it's it's, it's really interesting just now. Like I'd love to sit in a boardroom of a club and find out the transfer strategy and how they put it together for 
clubs that are looking to win the Champions League, then the next level of clubs that are looking to get near the Champions League semi-final, then the level below that of clubs who are trying to get into the knockout stage, then the clubs below that who are trying to get into the Champions League, and then all the different filters of levels of clubs who are trying to make their way up the ladder and what the different strategies and, and what the rationale is. Because to me, I think that that is a really important part of the football discussion for the next four or five years. Oh, don't even start me. And I'll say this window to me, I, I think there's a whole lot more to come. That that Neymar money's to move. There's there's just so much, so much still to happen. But listen, Stevie, we're, we're I think we're just about up on time here. So as always, before we go, Anna, you want to give a shout out, consultancy? Well, it's been a while. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, the, the the football consultancy is going well. If anybody wants to kind of learn more about um, football tactics, about how to analyse a match better, how to to try and use your analysis to create better sessions or to improve individual players or just for your, your own enjoyment about actually learning about more about what you actually watch on TV, then, then please get in touch. There's quite a lot of guys who have turned it into something tangible through work and stuff like that, which is nice. So, yeah, if anybody wants to, to learn more about football tactics and things like that, then please get in touch. And I, and I hear you're going to be part of this sort of new Braveheart Scotland pod that's coming up over the international break as well. <laughs> if it's called Braveheart, then I'm definitely in. <laughs> I, th- I think it's I think it's a good name for it to say. Ah, uh, well, look, I'm looking forward to that Scotland pod. I think I'm, I'm actually recording it for you next week, so it'll we'll be a bit of fun if nothing else. But listen, uh, from our own point of view, our usual pods are out there. Uh, we're recording a new show tonight. Actually, it's an all Scotland affair. Actually, um, the European Football Index is going to be the name of the pod um, i'm actually doing a couple of inserts for it here after this pod it should be with you about monday um uh, for the beginning of the week this will be out friday so uh keep an eye for that one it's going to be a, a bi- sort of twice a week show uh and it's sort of we lost sound of the Liga. we've lost a couple of pods over the summer so uh we're, we're just going to tidy europe up in, in in one swoop twice a week so keep keep your eyes open for that new pod coming up other than that just massive st- thanks to stevie again it's been far too long really looking forward to getting back into these we sort of missed the tactics podcast uh and just thanks again to the listener and until the next one just pleased to say goodbye <laughs>